Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Joined as always with uh, or by Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I am Andrew Johnson, pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And today we are joined by Scott McKnight, author of the book Revelation for the Rest of Us. And if we have this on recording with video, there it is. The book is shown on screen. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Good to be with both of you. Thank you. Well, we're we're grateful that you've taken the time to talk about your book and looking forward to, to digging in a little bit more deeply. Thank you. Yeah. Good okay. Fun. So, um, why did you write a book on Revelation? Can I just start there? Yeah. What what possessed you to say this is the most exciting thing? I would love to devote my time to talking about it and writing it. You know, some people write books to affirm what the church believes. They're sort of textbook writers. They're safe, they're cautious, they're solid. Mm -hmm. I don't write those kinds of books. <laughs> uh, I try to write books that I think I have something to say that's not being said or that I have a way of saying it uh, that might stimulate the interest in that topic that nobody else is saying it that way. So, um, the majority of people who, in the evangelical world into which, you know, I was born and raised, et cetera, I teach and have my mm -hmm. being. I would um, say it's the ethos in which you live. Yeah. the um, Most of them are um, some form of followers of a dispensational approach to the book of Revelation, which means they think that chapters 6 through let's say, 19, are basically about the tribulation period. And whether there's a rapture or not in the book of Revelation, which is there's not, but they could have a rapture before it or in the middle of it or toward the end or at the end. And then there's a, a millennium and stuff. And this, is, this has been a standard approach to the book of Revelation. And it has led to an approach that reads the book of Revelation as speculation about who in the modern world is doing what in the book of Revelation. So it sees mm -hmm. it all as prediction about some future state of affairs. So the, the current question would be whether Putin is the Antichrist, one of the mm -hmm. beasts of Revelation chapter 13. So uh, that's the standard way of reading it. But uh, I think that's totally wrong. <laughs> and I'm not alone in this. Um, for instance, Michael Gorman has a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly, mm -hmm. and he's he reads the book. Um, he thinks that those group that group is wrong, and he reads it as sort of what I call a theopolitical hermeneutic, mm -hmm. and that is he sees this as a critique of civil religion in our world, and at that time, of course, it was empire. And I think that's exactly what this book is about. It, it, it teaches the believers of Western Asia Minor how to discern 
the presence of Babylon in the churches and because they have learned to see what Babylon is like in the world. And it leads to a discipleship of what I call dissident discipleship or resistant. It leads to people who resist the ways of empire because they recognize it. Now, it's so interesting to me that the younger generation, I used to call them skinny jeans, but I've been told that they're not wearing skinny jeans anymore. <laughs> I have not. I have not noticed. Uh, they um, they do not like that speculation approach to the Book of Revelation. They don't like it at all. And I found that they didn't even want to hear about the Book of Revelation. They don't want to read it. They don't want to hear someone preach about it. But when I've talked to them about this theopolitical orientation to the Book of Revelation, they love it. This is what they're looking for. So I'm finding an amazing resonance with this book with people. I mean, uh, sometimes I thought, oh, I'm just going to get hammered for writing. Well, I wrote it with Cody Matchett, my graduate assistant, who's doing a PhD now. But um, I I thought that we're going to get hammered. But I'm I'm amazed at the number of people on social media who are reading it and telling me they like it. So, so mm. we're quite happy with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, go for it, Michael. Well, no, I I just wanted to clarify here because I was surprised to hear you say that that most of those who you uh, run into come from that dispensational background or most evangelicals. Is that certainly not uh, that most of the scholars that you're interacting oh, with, no, no. but uh, that those who who uh, populate the pews, perhaps? Well, yeah, I mean, here's what you know. Um, you know, all the stuff that's being written right now by people like Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead on right. Christian nationalism? Yeah. Right. Well, they are, they have, uh, I was just with Samuel Perry in Oklahoma City, and he and, uh, I don't know if Whitehead has done this with him, but they have discovered an amazing relationship between Christian nationalism and dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have. There is a high correlation. Now, he's also beginning to find that some of them are moving toward post-millennialism, which fits more their theology or their th politics. But um, there is a lot of this, the instinct of the average evangelical person in the pew. I've taught too many Sunday school classes, listened to too many lay people over the years. Their instincts are very much along a sort of modified, soft, general version of dispensationalism, mm -hmm. even though I know, Michael, that that's exactly right, that my professor friends, even at Dallas, do not adhere to that speculation stuff. <laughs> if anybody can't hear, Scott's smiling widely, uh, <laughs> Dallas referring to Dallas Theological Seminary, which holds a very strong dispensational view uh, and teaches that. Now, it, I actually want to jump in kind of perhaps as the the surrogate for the average listener. We're using terms like dispensationalism. We understand what that is. Scott, can you give a layman's definition for what is dispensationalism that you, again, are, are saying that pretty sure a lot of people hold a soft version of kind of the everyday person? Yeah. See, there's two things about dispensation. It's a way of reading the Bible by finding seven discrete periods in history in the Bible. So that's sort of a a hermeneutic, an approach to reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, it's usually connected to a view of the future that focuses on 
the importance of the nation of Israel, the state of Israel, uh, uh, a belief that there's going to be a rapture of the church people out of planet Earth up into the sky, that the world is getting worse and it will really devolve when we get into a seven-year period of the tribulation, following which there will be a 1,000-year millennium on Earth, and then there'll be a judgment and people will go to heaven or go to hell. It's, that's sort of a dispensational approach to the future. Um, and if anybody uh, watched, oh, what's the name of the movie? It left Behind. Well, Left Behind is the books, but yeah, the, the books, yeah. The famous black and white movie that I watched in the 70s. Oh, I can't I can't believe I can't remember. But Hal Lindsey's book and uh, Late Great Planet Earth. And uh so th those are those are the the sort of cultural markers for that viewpoint. And so this isn't something that that uh You've well. This is something that you've known about. You. This is your background. If I remember correctly, reading in the book, you grew up with this sort of perspective. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I grew up in American uh, fundamentalism. Um, my father. Well, okay, I was a paper boy. I think I started as a paper boy as an eleven or twelve year old. Got up at four o'clock, four thirty in the morning, delivered papers. Ooh. Um, went out in our small, safe community. <laughs> and um, the first thing I bought with my money from a paper route was a Schofield Bible. Uh, that was the that was sort of the mark of piety in my church. Mm -hmm. And I had a an old Schofield Bible, Morocco leather. Mm. It was a beautiful produced Bible by Oxford University Press. And uh, but my church was not real big on this. Uh, you have to kind of have a pastor who loves eschatology, loves to talk about the future, Israel, and signs of the times. Mm -hmm. Our pastor wasn't that way. He was a Paul guy who preached the Pauline letters. But our youth pastor got us into this when I was in high school. And so I read a book by Salem Kurban called Guide to Survival. Now, you won't believe this. Um, this is a book that was written for people who didn't get raptured and were alive in the tribulation of seven years, and this would be a roadmap for them of how to live and what and, and how to interpret what was going on in the world. Okay, and, uh, it was. Could you imagine really, writing a book like sitting down and saying, "Basically, my target market doesn't exist, and I am going to write this and just bank it for the future because someday someone's really going to love this." Oh, oh, but but uh, yeah, it was. He anticipated Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey's stuff was kind of Thief in the Night was the name of that movie. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Huh? Yeah. So um yeah, Salem Kerban's book was pretty, pretty stimulating for us as a youth group and some friends of mine, my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. And uh I grew up in that. And then when I was in college, I started to think a little bit harder about this stuff. And I actually Got in a little bit of trouble with some leaders because I became post-trib, which means I believe the rapture would occur at the end of the tribulation. When I went to seminary and then did my PhD, I sort of became a man and put away childish things, and I quit talking about the rapture and the millennium and stuff like that. 
but when I started teaching at Trinity way back in um, 1983, um, I had to talk about this because students had questions about it. And I talked, I taught the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which meant I had to deal with uh, the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Mm-hmm. So it was a part of my discussion, but it really wasn't till I was teaching at North Park for 17 years. I would give a lecture every year or two on the book of Revelation, and I was beginning to work out my idea based on having read all the Jewish apocalyptic literature and convinced that that speculation approach was just going to get us in trouble. And it really, it really, over time, I began to realize this is, I think, is pretty important. I think that the evangelical church that has caught up in that approach to the book of Revelation has failed to teach mm-hmm. churches how to discern the political situation that we live in. Mm-hmm. So it, it lacks, it is, instead of giving it categories to understand political corruption, it has instead given it um, a key to escape from the present political corruption. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and why is that? Why is, and this seems almost uniquely American, doesn't it? Why is there an American penchant for the, the apocalyptic, if you will? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know global Christianity well enough to say that I think that, that I do think it's very American. And one of the dramatic features, and this again can be found in Samuel Perry and uh, Andrew Whitehead's book um, about trying to get America back for God, um, is that, uh, let's say, Americanism and dispensationalism walk hand in hand. So those who in the United States were so obsessed with the dispensational approach the speculative dispensational approach to reading the book of Revelation and to the Bible, were also utterly convinced that the United States was in the right because we were on the side of Israel. Now, Paul Boyer has written a book, When Time Shall Be No More, in which he showed that Ronald Reagan based some of his international policies with Israel on his reading of the book of Revelation. Billy Graham passed this stuff on although it was very subtle. He wasn't really big on this, but he did write Hoofbeats of Armageddon or something like mm-hmm. this, um, in which he dabbled in um, this approach to the book of Revelation. So it is, it's very political. And the new book that is studying, that is written about the history of dispensationalism in the United States by Daniel Hummel has demonstrated that uh, dispensationalism hitched conservative theology with conservative politics. Mm-hmm. And so it's very political. It's very American in its American form. Okay. so And so you say, I can't remember on what page, but I thought this was, it made me chuckle. Dallas, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have, I have four students from Dallas Seminary in, in a class right now. And they really, they've really gotten a kick out of this. Each one of them has written me a note to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yes, I might I not mean, have taken a picture and sent that to a few friends myself. 
well, you're you're down in that area. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. So. Okay. Now you said something earlier, and I wanted because you're you're just touching on this topic, but specifically in that idea of civil religion and the fact that what John was writing towards was to both encourage and impact disciples to be dissidents, to stand against that civil religion. And as we're reading this now today, um, trying to regain that dissidence, uh, I, I just, I wonder is civil religion a uniquely Republican thing? Um, well, there's a really good book on this. I mean, other than the famous Robert Bella stuff on on this, Habits of the Heart, mm-hmm, that he mm-hmm. wrote, by Philip Gorsky. And um, I, think he, I think the title is American Covenant. Gorsky is advocating that this is a distinctly American political religion, civil religion, that goes back to early colonial America, eventually, Mm. where people began to find a a sort of a softened, even you can call it a secularist version of the Christian faith that still embraced Christian faith, but in a public forum, softened it so that it wasn't too abrasive and too denominational too theological. So civil religion is sort of the combination. To me, it is a combination of the church and the state that had its first major form in Constantinianism. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm very nervous about civil religion. I know it makes people happy in that we don't have those divisive discussions and we can have a basic kindness about us and a basic Christian approach that doesn't get too hard on Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or any other atheism. Uh, But it still at the same time sort of embraces a form of the Christian faith. And um, I think that it always water, I think the the faith is what is hurt every time Mm -hmm. uh, when we begin to form a civil religion. That's what Michael Gorman is concerned about is, uh, I mean, here's a classic example. I react when I speak in churches and they have a flag on the platform mm-hmm. because the book of Revelation teaches that in the end, every tribe and every tongue and every nation, all will be embraced in the in the way of the Lamb. It is not an American thing. I, I think patriotism is fine. People should can love their country, or they don't have to love their country. Mm-hmm. But um, when we begin to associate our Christian faith with Washington, D.C., or the capital of our state, or our village community and mayors, etc., we always end up diluting the Christian faith. Always. When when those two parties come together, the two sides of faith and religion, uh, nope, said the same thing twice. <laughs> politics and faith, it's always that compromise, only one side compromises. The politics rarely compromise. It's the faith that. Yeah, I mean, less. what happens is the Christian faith is accommodated to the state. So the state 
is actually got the upper hand. Mm -hmm. and, and this isn't necessarily uh, a right or a left political right. issue either, is it? Civil religion is found on both sides. Now, that would be Gorski's point, is that uh, the more liberal people would be uh, in favor of civil religion, whereas the right rightists, let's say, the right-wing people, would want a little stronger Christian nationalism. So, mm -hmm. but yes, from the very beginning, you know, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they had a sort of civil religion, um, and I think it's it's not a right versus a left thing. Uh, but many people today on the right see it as watering down the Christian faith. They want a Christian national vision. And people on the left, some people on the left think that it is a it is compromising true pluralism and liberalism and progressivism to let the church stick its camel's nose under the tent. Mm -hmm. I think it's so, a fascinating. So Michael thing. Moore, you know. Yeah. Well, and this is why I, I asked the question as I did, because um I think the common narrative right now. If you if you agree or tend to listen to the arguments, it's running technically between two false poles. So you've got Christian nationalism mm -hmm. on one side shouting against civil religion on the other, civil religion shouting against Christian nationalism, and both saying either ours is right and yours is stupid or vice versa, but running to either is running away from the lamb. It's running yeah, away yeah. from something that Jesus has actually called us to in lordship and running to him and, and following him exclusively. Um, they're both false. And, and you have to say both are walking away from what God has desired for his people. I totally agree with that, 100%. I think they're both compromises. At the, In a sense, they're, they're comp they, both ends are holding hands with one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, I appreciated so much that your book, it, it really is a revelation for the rest of us. And um, uh, what I appreciated pro probably more than anything in the book was how focused you were on the worship of the Lamb at the same time that you were focusing on the proclamation of the Lamb. Talk about that a little bit in relationship to what we've just been talking about in regards to civil religion, Christian nationalism. Do you see this as a part of the solution, solution, or at least a part of uh, what it means for the church to be a dissident church in a society like we find ourselves today? I think John's vision for, let's say, the Christians of Western Asia Minor can be reduced to three W's. Wisdom to discern Babylon. Hmm. Um, and second, witness in the sense of proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb and giving ourselves, our bodies even, for mm -hmm. the Lamb. So mm -hmm. the word witness um, in Greek is martureo as a verb, but the noun is martus, and that's where we get the word martyr. Mm -hmm. So there's wisdom, there's witness, and there's worship. And I find the worship dimension of this book stunningly interesting and provocative even that uh, when you you read the book of revelation in modern translations 
you will see so many lines that are show that show up in translations as poetry, as poetic lines. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, scholars counting how many of these poetic lines are actually early Christian hymns, songs, uh, you know, something like that. And I um, are, are we, Cody and I, in the book, at the back of the book, have an appendix on the on nine songs in the book of Revelation. Now, all, all this to say that uh, Brian Blount, uh, a black American theologian, Presbyterian, uh, has a book called uh, "Can I Get a Witness," which is a great mm-hmm. is a great little book on Revelation and an amazing commentary on the Book of Revelation. So he's a scholar on this. But Brian Blount pointed me to something that really helped me understand the Book of Revelation's songs. He pointed out to me that the Book of uh, the songs of Revelation are like the Negro spirituals of the enslavement days. Hmm. And those spirituals that are now so redolent in the African-American community were simultaneously songs that used the language and the theology of the slave owners and at the same time subverted mm-hmm. the theology of the slave Turned it owner. on its head. And they become, uh, when I looked over Jordan, what did I see? Yes, that looks like you're going to heaven, you know, coming for to carry me home. But it's also the Ohio River, so that they mm-hmm. could be emancipated and get north and, and set free. So they use language and with double meaning, and it's, it's, it's brilliant. I think the songs of the book of Revelation are acts of resistance and subversion of the way of the empire. And one of John's beliefs is that if believers will learn to worship the Lamb centrally and constantly, they will develop a skill of having the wisdom to see the presence of Babylon Mm -hmm. and empire and corruption Mm -hmm. in the world. The more you worship the Lamb, the easier it is to recognize the dragon. And the more you worship the Lamb and are fit for New Jerusalem, the more you recognize the presence of Babylon. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that begs the question, Scott. Uh, what, as you observe the American evangelical church today, it, what do you see? Do you see the more we're worshiping the Lamb, that we're, we're benefiting from the wisdom of God, or we're recognizing the Babylon or do you see something else here? Well, I think the yeah the uh, it, it's an obvious to me that so many American evangelicals have failed to recognize Babylon and that they're not only living in the midst but Babylon is reshaping the church, mm-hmm. and as a result, they're uh, blinded. It's like uh, the color of water; it's invisible to them, and uh, I think that. As a result, I would say that they are not truly worshiping the Lamb. They are worshiping a Savior God that sanctifies the American dream. I think you've nailed, hit the nail on the head. It's just there's quiet right now because it's just so damning. Um, because the truth of the matter is that 
Oh, and actually it just the, the sadness of how much we think or we have fooled ourselves into thinking we are about the lamb. But our lack of proximity to the lamb has blinded us from the fact that we have been chasing the dragon or or that we have been so affected we can't see how far off we are. Um what's the encouragement, I guess? Um because I, I am cynical. Um, I don't want to say cynical by nature because um, I think that's me blaming God. I think um, I'm cynical and it's too easy for me to point at or say, this is all bad. So what, what is the positive encouragement that you have for the church as they read this? What, what is Okay, the, you, ready, you, you ready for this, Andrew? I'm, I'm ready. I need I'm it, in, so yeah. I'm encouraged by the deconstructors the deconstructors in the American evangelical church. Okay. You have to unpack that. Okay. There's so (laughs) many people today who say they're deconstructing their faith. And the studies show that they're not, they're not cynical. um, And they are in some ways leaving their denominations and leaving their churches, but they are in a sense, losing religion without losing Jesus. So they they are deconstructing the nonsense connected to the church and to Christian faith and to pastoral leadership, and they want to get back to Jesus. Uh, they want the church to go there. So they are, they're not losing Jesus. They're not leaving Jesus. They're not leaving their personal faith and their fellowship, in a sense, with others who are like them. But instead, they are they are no longer going to tolerate the nonsense of institutional churches that have um, accommodated the way of the dragon so much. So I'm, I think uh, uh, there's a prophetic voice in the deconstruction movement today that instead of hearing people like Matt Chandler say it's sexy to deconstruct, I think he needs to stop and listen to the fact that these people have a lot to say, and we need to listen to what they have to say because they're making some really important points. Okay, I grew up in this in the 60s and 70s, and I remember when my generation thought that the institutional church, we didn't use that language, right, was uh, full of bunkum, you know, and we, we had problems with it, and we criticized it. Well, we made some—we, my generation— made some contributions to the fundamentalist neo-evangelical evangelical church in the United States. And we and we also failed. Uh, I think that mm-hmm. our original vision for a, a tighter connection of fellowship and commitment to the gospel of Jesus, to its implication for society, um, we became, my generation became the supporters of Ronald Reagan and became you know, sort of fresh, new, radical neo-capitalists. Uh, so I think we failed uh, to fulfill the vision, but I think this current generation of deconstructors, which are a lot like, I feel at times like they're just like we were, only different, um, I think that they have a really solid set of ideas that we need to listen to, and I'm encouraged by them. Hmm. What, uh, this is another podcast, this is another book, what is what are specifically one or two 
of the best ideas that you're hearing from those who are at least publicly saying, let's deconstruct or we are deconstructing? You know, they they listen to Jesus as the bread of life, and they wonder why the church doesn't care about bread for the poor. Mm. They uh, They care about justice in our society, about the inequity of of both employment and income, and they see pastors that make six figures or more, and they see churches that spend all their budget on the nice things in the building uh, while they're not paying attention to the local community. Um, I think that they see, um, I would call it, pervasive certainty about everything. And they know that human <laughs> beings can't know these things with certainty. And so the cockiness about the evangelical movement turns them off, and it should. So there's a few things. That's, yeah, yeah, those are some strong ones. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm remembering. I'm I'm not quite your generation, Scott. I I uh, am a little bit behind you, but I remember those days of uh, the cockiness of the evangelical movement. We were going to uh, to uh, see the world, uh, the Great Commission fulfilled in this generation, as uh, yeah. Bill Bright used to sign his his uh, letters to staff and and others. But certainly, that demonstrated a cockiness and a and a uh, that uh, we have not lived up to. But it, yeah, and I don't disagree. I think there is much to be appreciated with those who are really wrestling, deconstructing, if you will. What are you seeing being reconstructed here that is um, is pointing us in the right direction? Well, what what okay. You probably have picked up on that I may be working on a project on the prophetic voice of deconstruction, which mm. I am with, mm. with someone. <laughs> um, okay, here's an example. <clears throat> I think the fundamental idea is that they are losing their religion without losing Jesus. So they want to get back to a centered set based on Jesus. Mm -hmm. So they see the shepherd, the pastor, and then they want to be attached to the Good Shepherd. Um, so over and over, uh, we are. Uh, I'm I'm working on this with a, a pastor named Tommy Phillips. We are seeing deconstructors who are finding serious issues in the church that they want to push against, but they have a solution, and the solution's name is Jesus. They mm -hmm. want to get to a Jesus-centered. Faith, practice, and church. Mm -hmm. And that's where they're headed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, like our good friend, uh, friends, Mike Frost and Alan Hurst, and their recent book, Read Jesus, is pointing us in that direction uh, as well. Um, okay, this is completely off topic, but we've got you so confined to, uh, to this frame in our computers and on on uh on uh, a, a podcast and i can't help but uh, want to ask this question because there are those who are framing jesus in different ways and framing uh, the issues in different ways and they might very well identify themselves as being deconstructionists 
And here I'm thinking particularly of the, what is now being called the Christianity Seminar coming out of the West Star Institute. Uh, one of their most recent books, uh, um, After Jesus Before Christianity, is getting to these notions of reconstructing, even using going as far as using queer theory to uh, support gender-bending ideas that they see coming out of the, the New Testament. But this isn't the reconstruction you're talking about. Yet there can be some dangers, it would seem to me, if if... Uh, reconstruction isn't somehow, I don't know, I, somehow bounded in the historic faith while also maintaining a, a centered set, settedness in understanding that we're moving in and out to a, a, some form of consensual understanding of what orthodoxy is. Well, I don't know anything about that project with the West Star Institute, so I'll just leave that one to people who know <laughs> about it. But uh, Yes, uh, but here's here's what I've uh, what we've learned. Uh, we got access to research done on those who claim to be deconstructionists, and they are not leaving the church. They are reconstructing their faith, and that's that's been the sort of the theme. So they are uh, concerned about institutional stuff. They're concerned about the trappings. Um, the accessories of religion, but they are not completely walking away. And they, uh, so I, I think it would be fair to say that it is too early to ask them to say, where are you headed? Because they're exploring mm. new foundations rooted that they think are in the Gospels in the New Testament, and it's current shape, so they they are Bible readers uh, in some ways, although some of them put the Bible down because of all the interpretive traditions that they've had to wade through. But I, I don't think that they're walking away from the church traditions so much as they're walking away from the evangelical accessories. Mm -hmm. The machine um, that is the evangelical world um, has so so tightly wound itself to the faith of pursuing Jesus that to say Jesus is heard like the way that we always do here in this evangelical church and in this evangelical yeah, society. Yeah. And so to to follow him and to not follow that evangelical um, mindset almost seems like a rejection of Christ just because we blurred those lines so much. And so tightly, yeah. yeah. That's we can't avoid the uh, interpretive framework that we all grew up into. So that when when many people say Jesus, they think Baptist. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't think just Sermon on the Mount. They think Presbyterian or Calvinism, etc. So mm -hmm. that tradition is very strong, and I see people pushing against that. Hmm. Well, Scott, I think we have um, we've done all we can to mine from you some extra <laughs> joy and excitement around the book that you have just written, uh, Revelation for the rest of us. Well, now uh, I'm ready for the next one. I know I am too. I, I think mm -hmm. this is uh, wonderful. 
Um, this is very, very exciting. Uh, I think Michael and I, anytime that we're hearing anybody that's saying, hey, you know, maybe the prophetic voice has been ignored a little bit. Maybe we should hear a bit more from the from the prophets among us. Um, we're excited. So I'm already, I'm anticipating your next book. Um, I hope I get to be on the launch team just to, you know, <laughs> just to, to read it in advance and, and spread these good news. Uh, Have you seen the new book by John Ward called Testimony? Mm-mm. How um, how evangelicalism failed a generation? Oh gosh, it's see, really that, fascinating. See, that He's, just feels he, like it fills my cynical side all over again. Well, he he is the senior political correspondent for Yahoo News, and he's got this little book from Brazos called Testimony, and he tells the story of growing up in C.J. Mahaney's church and circle and uh. tribe, and um how he broke away from that, left it gently, sort of. And um, I would see him as as a perfect example of a person who says, I want to get back to what what this is all about. It's it's a good book, a really good book. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll consider that a reading companion to Revelation for the rest of us. Um, It's it's available uh, pretty much most places books are sold. because uh, it's out by Zondervan, so you've got a pretty solid and wide release. Um, if people have questions for you, if they want to write you, uh, where could they do so? Well, I have a Twitter account, Scott McKnight. One T and Scott, that's the only trick. And uh, also, if you go to the Northern Seminary website, you can find my e- my email address there. It's, um, it is whatever it's called, redirected to my standard account but uh i'm available that's wonderful well scott truly thank you for your time i uh am loving the book it is very encouraging i've already told michael and some others i was like this is the book i need right now for my soul in this season thank you Um, thank you glad to hear that a great encouragement uh to us uh so uh listeners Thank you so much for joining Michael Scott and I today. If you want to continue to engage on all things that we have with Ephesiology, check us out online, ephesiology.com, or even the theological online education that we are continuing to engage in, masterclass.ephesiology.com. So for Scott, Michael, and myself, thank you for joining us on the Ephesiology Podcast.